Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Sam Galvano. Uh, Dr. Galvano, among his medical training, put a feather in his cap in a big way by getting his PhD over at Hopkins in clinical investigations uh, with his thesis on uh, EMS management that involved uh, helicopter transport. Uh, it was uh, first authored in JAMA on the topic. We're lucky to have him. He's won multiple Teacher of the uh, Year awards. He's the associate uh, director of our surgical ICU, um, is involved in the Air Force as well, as you can see, is a, a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel there, and is the uh, director of the critical care uh, division in the Department of Anesthesia. So thank you, Sam, for uh, talking to us about these two important topics. Okay. Well, first and foremost, it's really my pleasure to be here today. I, I have to say, I think singularly Singularly, this is probably the best educational endeavor I've ever been associated with at any institution I've worked at. And I really mean it. This, the Maryland CC project is something to really be proud of. It's a homegrown uh, endeavor, and everybody's talking about it all over the country. So really an honor to be here today. So uh, the choice of induction agents, I'm going to focus just on induction agents. And I'm not, you know, there's a whole separate hour we could talk about uh, the neuromuscular blockers. I am going to talk briefly and at least communicate to you at least our our biases that we have in doing this and on the anesthesia side. But really want to focus on just the anesthetic agents and give you a good review. This is, again, very high yield stuff for critical care boards. Um, I get a lot of that where folks just ask me, you know, Sam, can you just talk about regular induction agents a little bit? Because we kind of know most of us just give Atomidate sucks, and that's about what we know. Um, but, uh, and this is not pertaining to the EM folks, it's more to, you know, surgeons. I mean, there's a lot you got to cram into your brain. So it's, you know, just, you just need to know a few of them, I think, pretty well. And I think you'll be safe. So the idea here is the patient, at least in trauma patients, I'll focus on that population. But what I'm going to tell you is, is applicable if you understand the drugs in any population. Um, but we, we talk about earning the anesthetic. And I think that's an important thing to consider when you're giving an induction agent because you can really hurt a patient. Um, if you choose the wrong induction agent. Again, I don't have any other disclosures I haven't already mentioned. I want to just talk about at least three induction agents for uh, how to induce anesthesia in trauma patients, talk about the pharmacology of these agents, and then um, we'll talk about scopolamine and midaz real quickly at the end uh, and like what the latest is on that, which you, kind of some watch outs for that. All right, induction. This, first, I can't go on without saying, and you, most of you know Dr. Weingart very well. He's a great guy, and uh, if you're going to really um, keep your patients safe, this is probably one of the podcasts you, I would absolutely think that you should listen to. He's got a great podcast. It's really quick, 20, 30 minutes, where he goes into this. He's got a whole series on this, but this is the one I really like, Podcast 104. So. Uh, check that out, listen to it when you're going home, it's excellent. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about, I mean, I think we're both on the same page with just about 90% of everything. Um, but the laryngoscope is a deadly weapon if used, um, and I, the laryngoscope, the process of intubating is really what he's getting at, what I'm going to get at. You can really hurt somebody. I, I've done it. I mean, we've all made this mistake, given too much induction agent, dropped the pressure, got ourselves in trouble. It happens to everybody. You just have to be careful and try to understand the drugs and choose them ju as judiciously as you can. And so that's what I'm, I'll try to impart with you today, along with some of my, my biases on um, the agents I think are, are helpful. I've included in your background information some of the articles, two really good reviews. Uh, the Stolings paper gets into the pharmacology of the drugs, so if you really want to brush up on that, 
I'm going to give you just about everything that she talks about in that paper, but, uh, but you're, you can, if you want to go back and get the details again, that's a good, way to, a good place to start. Most of you who have rotated with me up in trauma, if you're doing an airway rotation, I usually try to give you the L. Orbani paper, which is a really good review of RSII. And I prefer the term RSII because it really is intubation's one thing, induction's one other, another component to that. And the two go together. It's, just a, it's probably just minutia, but I usually refer to it as RII uh, rather than just RSI because I think the induction sequence is something you really have to try to think about. So real quickly, you know how many people it takes to do this, but I really think you have to assign somebody if you can. And I know many of you work, I mean, Mike works in many austere locations where he's the only, only guy in, you know, doing all this stuff, trying to do all of it. But if you can assign somebody to really pay attention to the induction agents, at least that's what I try to do. When we bring people up in trauma to intubate, it's not a sign of weakness. It's just, you know, I, there's, there's nobody we shouldn't be able to manage. We shouldn't be working here if we can't manage them independently. But I always will grab somebody because I think it's better. You saw it last night. I brought an army with me, literally an army. Um, I think it's just good. You, you know, you have someone to assign these different roles. And to have somebody really paying attention to the induction agent and, and giving that is really critical. It's kind of like running a code. You know, you don't want to be the guy doing the, the defib and trying to intubate and put a line in and then calling out all the drugs and trying to stay on top of when the next cycle is CPR. So I just would encourage you to really think hard about trying to, you know, and being a leader in the ICU, delegate that role to someone if you can. And I understand you can't always do that, but if you can, it's, it's helpful. In our world, in the ICU, in emergency medicine, and in trauma, it's like doing a backflip. You commit. You have to commit to it. If you try to, you know, bail out midway, you're going to be really in big trouble. So in our world, a rapid sequence induction and intubation is oftentimes more the rule than the exception. Um, we, can, we could talk about different ways to do that, but not. this isn't a talk on RSI. It's really a talk on just the drugs you're going to give during that pr procedure. Um, and these are just tenants that we all know very well in, in doing this um, upstairs and elsewhere. So um, just keep in mind that you, you, our commitment is to the airway. We don't really have the ability in anesthesia. We have the ability to back out, wake the patient up, and call it a day and bring them back and let someone else worry about the case, you know, or save it for the night shift. We don't have that ability in the ICU. We have to commit to the patient. So. It's like doing a backflip. We have to be ready to commit. I just I like to show this just so you're aware, those of you that haven't seen this algorithm. It's very similar to the there's there's the ASA algorithm, which I have to be honest is not really that applicable to ICU and EM environments. I just don't think it is. Um, with all due respect to my colleagues, I think this is a little bit more realistic. This is what Chris Stevens and Dr. Dutton published, and actually Dr. Kantroff, who's now also in our department again. Um, and you can see here, you know, you give a couple laryngoscopy tries. Uh, we try to add in a bougie, do something different, different blade. Um, what you don't see here is the glide scope that was just coming out when they went through this review, but I think video laryngoscopy, again, that's a whole other talk we can get into. But the bottom line is, um, you are committing to that airway. So in choosing your agents, you know, you got to be careful because this is, what you're, this is where you're going to wind up. You don't want to wind up with a surgical airway. I can tell you that here, the, at least they in this study they showed, it's about 0.2 to 0.3%. So it's a pretty rare event. There will probably be a good number of you that go out, go through your fellowship that don't even, may not even do a crike, may not even do a crike. 
they, this is the classic ATLS picture that we show. That was a cherry bomb in the mouth. This is a patient who uh, actually shock trauma, who shotgun blast to the face. So that's, that is one of our patients and, as opposed to the ATLS patient. You have to make a commitment to the airway. Can't, you can't waver on that. So hypotension we know is very bad for RSII. If they're hemodynamically unstable before you attempt to intubate them, you can pretty much expect, do not expect them to suddenly get better. We do talk about the stimulation of direct laryngoscopy and how that can sometimes bump the blood pressure up. But in a patient who's hypotensive, if they're on vasopressors, um, they are going to be at only greater risk to have more and more and more hypotension. So that's where picking your induction agent really comes into play, and it's critical. In terms of neuromuscular blockers, I told you this isn't really a huge talk on that. I'm going to give you some of the literature here. Um, the usual doses, so that comes up a lot. I just, I'd like to give you practical stuff that you can think about. Um, one to two mg per keg, I think everybody knows that. If you're going to give it IM, you need to double the dose. So that's something we commonly have to do upstairs when we get rambunctious folks. Rocaronium, I usually like to just leave it at one mg per keg. That's what most of us usually, it's 1.2 is probably the actual optimal dose if you're going to give a true RSII dose. But once it's easy to remember, and you're not going to be off that much. And um, there's also references that talk about 0.6. I added Vecaronium there because I don't think, does anyone use Vecaronium for your RSIs? Probably not, pro hardly anybody. We actually have a couple of very old seasoned veteran uh, CRNAs who swear by Vec as an RSI agent. So I went back in the literature, and I don't have the reference here, but I can tell you that um, even at the high dose, you know the normal dose is 0.1 mg per kg. At the high dose of 0.3 mg per kg, you're still looking at up to 90 seconds. So it's longer, much longer than rock. It's not the three minutes you get with 0.1. So you give Vecaronium, you you're going to need a good three minutes before you have optimal intubating conditions with a 0.1 mg per kg dose. If you up that by three times to 0.3, It'll decrease the time, but you're still going to have 90 seconds. And 90 seconds is an awful long time if you've got an unstable patient. So what I'm trying to say here is, I'll show you the next slide, which details this. Um, well, I'll get into it. But what I'm going to basically conclude here with the meta-analysis in just a minute is that sucks and rock are probably the two agents of choice, really, that we're going to use. I bring up VEC because we, have, we do have drug shortages. We've run out of sucks. We've had shortages of rockaronium. We've never run out of it. So I think it's important, and especially if you're working in other countries like Haiti, where I don't know if, if you have these agents, you may not. So VEC is an option to think about. But if you're going to use it, make sure you go with a higher dose in that case. Sucks. I only, this is an obligatory slide because this is always a board question. Um, they will find a way to ask this in just about every board question or any advanced life support, ATLS, ABLS. This is always something that comes up in all those courses we teach, and I think you all know that, right? I will tell you for burns, the, the parting line there, the latest on that is probably 48 hours you're safe. Most of us would not give this, though, after 24 hours after burns. Most of us would just go to Rockeronium to keep it simple, quite frankly. Um, this is the um, Cochrane review from 2008, and you'll see that that forest plot and the effect estimate um, does favor succinylcholine versus rocaronium in terms of um, optimizing your airway and first pass success. But I will tell you that this all disappears when you give a dose of 1 to 1.2 mg per rocaronium. This is comparing a lower dose of rocaronium to the standard dose of sucks. So when you look at this or you hear about this, um, just keep in mind this is um, 
there's a subgroup analysis where they looked at the higher dose rocaronium and found no difference between optimal intubating conditions. So again, I know you guys are, I think most of my EM colleagues are big fans of rocaronium. I am as well. Um, there are some watchouts with it, but you know, if you're not sure, um, rocaronium is a, is a fine choice. Just give it a, give it at the right dose. So that's that's another agent that you have to be careful about. All right, let's just jump into in the last few minutes here the actual agents. Atomidate, a couple things about Atomidate. It's it's got very good um, potential neuroprotect um, neurologically beneficial effects. It can maintain the cerebral perfusion pressure. It can decrease the uh, metabolic rate um, in this, in the ICP. You can't give it IM. Uh, it is a painful injection if it's a patient who's going to be waking up after a little bit. It does cause a lot of nausea and vomiting. It's very emetogenic. Um, some people call it atoma, uh, what's the, what's the um, atoma, uh, a vomitate, as some people will say. So it is very emetogenic if you've got a patient who's going to be waking up and it's just a short time, you need to intubate them and then wake them up. Um, that's the usual dose. It should be, this one should be dosed on ideal body weight. So you should get out your calculator and, and calculate the IBW for these patients if they're obese, because you'll wind up grossly overdosing them. And we all know about the effects of Atomidate. You know, this is the one, that I have to put this up here because Anthony, who, who is here with us, is one of the authors. There has subsequently been several other meta-analyses and sub systematic reviews. So in this one, they found a, an independent risk factor for um, adrenal insufficiency and possibly more, and mortality. This was a highly criticized study. It wasn't done that long ago in 2012, but it was highly criticized. And the subsequent trials that have come out, in fact, I think I've got one of them here, I do in cardiac, have not shown this effect. So I think the overall gist of Atomidate is you're probably safe. We, don't, we know it causes adrenal insufficiency, whether or not that's, even after one dose, whether or not that's clinically significant, not quite sure. I, I will tell you my bias in just a second. Um, I can tell you in cardiac patients, post-operative outcomes, this is a very robust analysis, propensity scores, they did everything right with this, Bonferroni corrections, everything was correct with this in terms of method methodology. And they did not find any increased risk factor when we gave this agent to cardiac patients. So that's another population where it's safe. Um, so I think to conclude on Atomidate, uh, again, I'm trying to be fairly brief here with our limited time, but I think in moderately shocked patients, it's probably safe. I think most of us think it's probably safe. It can still drop your blood pressure. We talk about this as being a hemodynamically bland agent, but it can drop your blood pressure. I, I personally think it's a bit controversial in sepsis. I will try to look for other agents in septic patients if I can, and I'll, I'll share with you my bias, the agent I like. But um, I think I will, I will be careful about it. I'm just I'm worried about that trial that came out in 2012. I know it has some limitations, but they did see a signal there. And even though that was refuted by some of the other trials, you know, there's there's a question in my mind about using this in sepsis. So I, I will. It's probably okay, but I, I usually try to go to alternatives if I can. This is from Scott Weingart. So he, you know, the propofol assassins, and we're we're guilty of this in trauma because, as you know, in our yellow boxes we stock propofol because it's not regulated. It actually. It actually is. In fact, in our ORs, we have to sign it out. I was shocked coming over here that we're inducing trauma patients with propofol. We know this drug drops your SVR, causes hypotension. Um, yeah, it's a great anesthetic agent for patients that are stable. If any of us were going in for elective surgery, yeah, this is a wonderful agent. But um, I will tell you that when we use it in trauma patients, we have to be really super careful. A lot of times we'll give 10 milligram increments if we're going to use this drug. Literally, that may be all you need in an 80-year-old woman or man to get 
that patient induced. Um, give it time to circulate, and you know, uh, we, I put down here 0.5 mg per kg. That may even be a generous dose in a trauma patient or an unstable patient. You have to be super, super careful with propofol. Great neurologically beneficial effects, but um, but it can cause hypotension. That's the main thing. It just it can really drop your pressure and make get you into trouble quickly. Some people will argue that's a good thing because it, it's diagnostic. I would argue, I would argue that's really just bad medicine. I don't think I, I, I and I know I'm preaching to the choir on that one. No, we don't need to diagnose hypotension with propofol. We should be able to do echo, and we're in the 21st century. We don't need to bottom their pressure with this to, to diagnose that. My personal favorite, and I'm finding fewer and fewer contraindications for this agent, is ketamine. Dissociative agent, highly lipophilic, so it gets right into the blood-brain barrier. It's got a very rapid onset. If you haven't used it much, you have to be careful because you'll, you'll induce a patient, the surgeon will be looking over your shoulder saying, whoa, what's going on? Are we going here? Are we moving? Because their eyes will be open still and they'll be kind of dissociated. Um, and that's fine, you know, and they will continue to spontaneously breathe. That's a good thing for a lot of patients, I, I would argue. This idea of the direct myocardial depression, so that's what's in all the textbooks. I can tell you that, and I, we have had cases, I've reviewed a couple of cases where we probably have gotten patients in trouble that had a very low left uh, ventricular ejection fractions, uh, very depressed LV function. And we gave it to them and then it did cause problems. So I would be very careful if you've got a patient with a really low EF, um, just be careful. But I can tell you that there's a lot of other people on the other side of that that would argue it's not gonna be an issue. And that the indirect effects, the indirect sympathomimetic effects of ketamine are beneficial in that patient and may help them. If there's catecholamine depleted, late shock, get to us late, they're transferred from another hospital, they're still not intubated, their catecholamines are depleted, we have reasons to indicate that. Ketamine is a drug you have to watch out for. You're not gonna get that sympathetic kick if they're catecholamine depleted. But this idea of it being a direct myocardial depressant is probably true, it's been shown in the lab. In humans, I think you just have to be careful, maybe reduce the dose. This is the dosing range. Most of us just give one mg per kg. That's an easy one to remember. Um, and you can give some more give some more if you have to. Um, and I can tell you that in ICP patients, and I know several of our, my colleagues from neuro, Jen's heard probably, I've probably given this article about three times. Um, this is a myth. You can give it for patients with uh, neurologic issues. And I, I think I, I, if I didn't include this article, you should really get it. It's a great one. And it talks about ketamine um, for increased ICP. Yeah, may transiently increase the ICP slightly, but there's actually a whole host of neuroprotective effects with ketamine. So I would argue that this is a myth. Um, my colleagues in trauma still don't all believe this. Um, they still will tell you, oh, it's a head injury, can't give ketamine. Probably not true. Um, and this is a great article that gets into the medical mythology of that. So I, I really find that this is becoming more and more my drug of choice. Uh, I tell you in the military, when we're deployed, this is our drug of choice for just about everybody. It's a different population. They're healthier, young you know, pre-selected is a huge selection bias there, I get that. Um, but they also can be in profound shock that can be, again, unmasked if we tried to use propofol fooled by their vital signs. So I think ketamine is a great choice. It is the preferred agent in cardiac tamponade. That is a common board question you will get over and over again. Um, the IC, ICP bits have been debunked, I think, pretty thoroughly. Okay, last comment. I know we're two minutes over, but I've, I, real quickly with lidocaine, and this comes from the EM literature, I don't think there's much benefit to lidocaine. I think it's in shortage, so it's, sometimes it's hard to find nowadays. Um, I would argue we should probably reserve this drug for other cases where we 
really need it, like blocks, regional blocks and such. But again, my bias, but I can tell you the literature here, and there's at least three studies that I have here quoted for this, really probably not efficacious for reducing the ICP. That's the classic thing. Let's give some lidocaine so we can prevent the bump in the ICP. I think you can attenuate that with some fentanyl and, and just using judicious doses of your drugs. Um, atropine is, is a big one for kids or young adults that may have, again, that vagus is still unbalanced because their sympathetics haven't grown up as, as quickly with them. So that may be a drug you need to consider with kids just as a reminder. The other two that I just want to mention briefly, scopolamine. So this is also classically described, but I can't, I got to tell you, we just, and we just reviewed this and I, the article, you, you have the article, really not a lot of data on how reliable it provides amnesia. So this is the, the idea is this patient's super sick. Yeah, you can give succinylcholine to optimize the airway, but they have not, they can't even earn an anesthetic because their blood pressure is 60 systolic. So we, but we don't want them to remember anything. They could still remember something. And, and I'll share with you the quote that Dr. Dutton would say to people, and that is uh, he would have patients that would, you know, after they were resuscitated, he'd say, hey, you know, how you doing? Hey, doc, I remember everything. I remember you guys intubating me. And, he, he, and his answer to that was, and you have to worry about being sued for that nowadays, but his answer to that would be like, thank God, because you know what? We thought you were dead. <laughs> and most of the patients, okay, yeah, okay, cool, that's fine. I'm not going to sue you. Um, but just keep that in mind. I mean, if you want to be a nice guy and try to give him an amnestic, this is one agent to consider. The problem I have with it is it, it confounds your neuro exam. It's going to dilate the pupils for a long time. So that can really screw up your neuro exam. So just be careful about that. Benzos are not, are probably underutilized. They do have a long onset. If you go with a higher dose of 0.2, it'll get you a little bit closer to a normal induction sequence time frame, but just keep in mind you have to give a higher dose. These are the usual doses we give, two to four of midaz, five to ten of diazepam. Midaz is probably a little bit of a better choice. Water-soluble, a little bit more rapidly acting, um, but they're not great for induction, but again, if you're looking for a hemodynamically bland agent, these are probably great drugs. They will not usually drop your blood pressure unless you combine them with opioids. So if you give them independently, do a midaz slash succinylcholine slash rocaronium induction. This is a very stable induction sequence. And then we summarize this in the table that I've given you. Nitrous, I just got to give my haters going to hate article. And I'm not a huge fan of nitrous. Uh, it's good in austere locations. I just, there's some things that I really worry about with it. And most, some of this has been debunked. Some of it's a little bit of my bias, but um, it's probably not a great agent to induce anesthesia. It's probably better for maintenance or maybe bridging or doing procedures. Um, where you guys work, I know, as well in the, uh, maybe even in the ICU, perhaps. But I, there's concerns I have for it. It's really not, for RSII, going to be a drug you're going to, an agent you're going to use. And it also depletes the ozone layer, which I have to show that slide. It does big time deplete the ozone layer. Okay, um, that's where I'm going to stop. High-dose opioids, this is really more maintenance. I'm going I'm to kind of just stop there, and then this, this is a, a figure that you have. I'll stop there because I know I'm going over. It was a lot to kind of cover in a short time, but I, I hope that gives you a little bit of insight into those two topics. And I'm, I'm imminently available for questions. Um, email me or catch me in the hall. I'll be back tonight, 6.30. So see me in the true. But again, it's an honor to talk to you. It's been a privilege, and uh, hope to see you soon on the wards.